Welcome to your daily affirmations. Repeat after me, working with others is easier than ever. I strive for perfect collaboration. Our teamwork keeps getting better. Yeah, affirmations are great, but Monday.com can really get you the teamwork you desire. Work together easily and share files, updates, data, and just about anything you want all in one platform. Affirm yes to start. Or tap the banner to go to Monday.com. With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network, and I'd like to tell you that we have a new and improved website. It has two new features that we think you'll love. One of them is a vastly improved search engine so that when you type in keywords, you'll get a bunch of episodes really quick. The other is the ability to create a listener account. And in that listener account, you can save episodes for later listening. So you can create a kind of listening list. We think these features are neat and we think you'll enjoy them. Please visit the site today. What do our myths say about us? And why do we choose to believe stories that have been disproven by science? In Myths of the Runestone, Viking Martyrs in the Birthplace of America, David Kruger takes an in-depth look at a legend that held tremendous power in one corner of Minnesota, helping to define a community's identity for decades. In 1898, a Swedish immigrant farmer claimed to have discovered a large rock with the writing carved into its surface in a field near Kensington, Minnesota. The writing was interpreted to tell a North American origin story predating Christopher Columbus's exploration in which Viking missionaries reached what is now Minnesota in 1362 only to be massacred by Native Americans. The tale's credibility and the inscription's authenticity was quickly challenged and ultimately undermined by experts, but the myth took hold. Popular faith in the dubious artifact emerged as a local expression of American civil religion, which appealed to Scandinavian immigrants, Catholics, small-town boosters, and those looking to commemorate the white settlers who died in Dakota War of 1862. This book is a case study of how myths are created, propagated, and adapted over time, and reveals something unique about Americans' preoccupation with divine right and its troubled way of coming to terms with the history of the continent's first residents. In our conversation, we discussed myth, small-town life in Minnesota civic identity, martyrdom, secularization, the Cold War, Vikings, Marian devotion, Native Americans, Christian identity in Minnesota, American civil religion, and the multiple venues for using this book in the classroom. Thanks for listening to New Books in Religion. I'm one of your co-hosts, Christian Peterson. And without further ado, here's my conversation with Dave Kruger about Myths of the Runestone, Viking Martyrs, and the Birthplace of America. Hey, I'm great, Christian. Thanks a lot for, for taking the time to talk to me. Yeah, now this is a, a great book and uh, one that I think is useful to anyone in the study of religion because it brings in so many interesting uh, examples and case studies and really kind of pushes the boundaries of kind of our theoretical models. So I, I really appreciate uh, you writing it in such a clear way, and uh, I'm looking forward to talking about it. Right. Well, me too. Before we get into the book 
uh, our tradition here at New Books and Religion is to, to find out a little bit about how you got to the study of religion. So can you tell us a little bit about uh, your background, perhaps mentors or moments that were influential in steering you to the study of religion? I think the category of, of religion and, and faith has always had a fairly strong pull on my life um, ever since when I, when I was growing up in rural Minnesota. I grew up in a uh, tradition called the Swedish Baptist tradition. It was a pietist sect, it kind of broke away from the Lutherans in, in Sweden in the 19th century and came to the, to the U.S. And uh, that was the, the kind of the ethnic religious, ethno-religious tradition that I, that I grew up in, went to an evangelical college in Minnesota. And um, even post-college, I, I always found that religion was kind of a motivating factor in my life. And I came to uh, North Philadelphia and worked as a volunteer with, uh, with young people in an at-risk neighborhood in, in North Philly. And I found that, that uh, through that kind of like the religious impulse that pushed me to engage in a life of service, it also really challenged me to, uh, to question the status quo and working in an underprivileged neighborhood really helped to kind of sharpen my social criticism and my uh, critique of the status quo. And I think that that, uh, in many ways, really shaped the way that I've approached uh, my my academic uh, career as well. I always had this deep passion for learning and trying to dig deeper into understanding the the framework of how things fit together, how society is structured, how it enacts its will on us, so to speak. And, and I tiptoed into the academic life through seminary and first pursued a Masters of Divinity uh, class uh, course, which was just seemed like the obvious thing to do as a youth minister in the neighborhood. But once I got into seminary, I realized that I, I was really was wanting to engage in a deeper level beyond just the practicalities of ministry. But I really wanted to, to think critically about society, how religious uh, assumptions are, 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 are framed and constructed. And uh, I got two seminary degrees. My second seminary adventure was in Princeton in New Jersey. And I remember taking a class by uh, a guy named Richard Fenn. He was a sociologist of religion up there, and he wrote a book called Return of the Primitive. And I remember reading that book, and it was a really tough book, and, but I felt so motivated to, to just to dig into it and to really understand uh, what it was going for. And one of the themes that just stood out to me in that book was a sense of um, contemporary societies in so many ways are kind of possessed or, or captivated in, in, by the past, um, in the sense of the, the certain aspects of the past that are unresolved, that are, are, uh, that haven't been come to terms with, find their way of, of probing into the present and influencing, um, how we conduct our social lives today. And that past anxieties, if they're not resolved, continue to come back to haunt us. And Fenn's book just really opened my imagination to thinking about history, and to thinking about some of the things that I wanted to, to, to write about. So I continued further graduate studies at Temple uh, University in Philadelphia. I applied to a number of uh, seminaries just because I was kind of familiar with that type of, of worldview, this kind of Protestant and even a liberal Protestant worldview. 
But Temple really opened me to some very new, uh, some really exciting possibilities. And, and studying along with Muslims and Jews and humanists and, and people from all these different traditions really opened my mind up to seeing religion in a much broader and richer way, you know, far beyond this, this obsession with uh, beliefs that was uh, so much a part of my kind of Protestant habitus or, or way of seeing the world. A couple of essays and, and books that really impacted me. Um, Robert Bella's essay on American civil religion was one that fascinated me. Um, being able to conceive of religion as something that exceeded beyond the um, the bounds of traditional religion, but something that permeated American culture itself. And I thought that was just stimulated my imagination in some really interesting ways. And and reading uh, Pierre Bourdieu's um, notion of uh, symbolic violence, um, that deeply resonated with uh, uh, with me as well. This notion of how, you know, asking the questions of how do the powerful make it appear as if their privilege and power is deserved or perhaps even ordained by God. Um, so I'm so grateful to folks like Terry Ray and John Rains and John Paul and Rebecca Alpert and David Watt. Um, they were all instrumental in really um, getting me more and more excited about uh, my, my project, um, which we're talking about today. That's great. And how did this project uh, start? How did it emerge as a kind of a book-length object? Well, I think uh, there's there's a huge autobiographical piece to this work as well because I, I write about the kind of the cultural civic religion of a of a small town of a region of of Minnesota, and that's where I grew up. Um, I grew up on as a you know on a farm not far from Alexandria. And I grew up in a community that was obsessed with its with its origins. You know, they talked about the first settlers who came um, in 1858 and, and settled in the town, the white settlers that that were there. But they also talked about a a, a a deeper history that went far before. And I never heard much about Native American history as a child growing up in school, but I did hear an awful lot about Viking history. Uh, there's a myth in my town that Vikings had visited the region in the year 1362, long before Columbus, of course. There was the belief that these Vikings had been there on a special uh, mission. Now, by the time that I went to, uh, was growing up, this myth had had been largely discredited, and um, there was this tall, 28-foot-tall Viking statue made out of fiberglass, which stands in the middle of the town, um, it's kind of a silly looking uh, statue. Hold, he's holding a spear and a shield. And on the shield are the words that are emblazoned. Uh, Alexandria, Minnesota, birthplace of America. This kind of audacious claim that this small town in Minnesota was the place where America, however we define that, um, began. Uh, so in many ways, I, I grew up with this, this kind of a kitschy iconography in the town, this kind of myth that had been discredited. Um, I didn't think so deeply about it, but once I had gone to graduate school and began to think about um, the power of myth, the power of, of symbols and how they define a community and how they embody the values, the hopes, the dreams of, of society, I just found that this um, story in my hometown was, was a rich 
fertile field that required uh, deeper analysis. Now, this project, uh, you did a lot of work on this during your graduate studies at Temple. Can you talk a little bit about um, perhaps things that you had to do in order to to, to form it into the book, uh, going from the dissertation to the book? Uh, did you have to reform it or add things, take things away? How did, how did that process work for you? Well, if listeners are interested in, in reading the dissertation, it's actually called uh, The Cult of the Kensington Runestone, Cultural Power and the Production of American Civil Religion. And you can get a copy of it uh, on your search engines uh, via ProQuest. So I completed the dissertation and defended, um, finished it in 2011. And at that point, you know, I'd spent uh, three years uh, – well, I spent basically because of my uh, uh, my wife's employment situation, we had actually relocated from Philadelphia to Minnesota, my home state. So I spent about three years studying my, for my comp exams and doing all the research, and I was pretty burned out because <laughs> I was so immersed in this topic uh, for that time period. So I let her rest for a few months, and then gradually I got into working on a proposal and started to rewrite uh, a few of the first chapters. Now, the dissertation had about 330 pages worth of material, which, I mean, in my view, it was just too much <laughs> as far as turning it into a book. So I had to do a lot of trimming. Really, from the very beginning, I wanted this, this book to be you know, what publishers refer to as a crossover book, a book that would have you know, academic chops, so to speak, but also the, a book that would have some popular appeal. I really wanted my research to be accessible to a, a fairly broad audience. Um, it, to me, you know, writing for a very narrow academic field just hasn't felt very satisfying. I really wanted to somehow connect with the public because I felt like it was, was a really important topic to do so. So when I began really digging into it and reworking it, I, I found that I had to really reorganize uh, recon- reconceptualize how I organized uh, the text. You know, the uh, the dissertation, the first chapter was all, you know, the introduction, um, the literature review, which is the staple of the dissertation, um, a lot of in-depth theoretical analysis and kind of like summary of, of theories. And basically, I just had to, to really kind of throw most of it out. And just try to glean some of the main conceptual ideas and reintegrate that into the body of the work. The, another chapter that I totally dismantled was my um, chapter, which gave basically about a 60-year history of the scientific and pseudoscientific arguments of, is this Kensington Runestone artifact authentic or is it not? And I just kind of summarized um, all the arguments for and against but when I began to think about it more, I began to, to realize that when people are making scientific ar- arguments and scientific claims, they aren't just arguing from a purely rational perspective. Their arguments, all of these arguments about this, this controversial artifact are deeply rooted in cultural desires and certainly in political agendas and it felt really important to me to, to integrate this story of the debate um, deep into the cultural fabric of all these communities that took an interest in this very fascinating artifact. So ended up with the University of Minnesota Press after I submitted it to a couple of other presses, and I feel really p- pleased with what uh, 
the U of M press uh, did with uh, the manuscript. I'm really grateful for their help and guidance along the way. Yeah, it seems like a perfect fit, of course, too. So, so the book revolves around this artifact, we can maybe call it, uh, the Kensington Rune Stone. Can you just uh, – so we all start off on the same page. What What is this? Uh, what does it say? Um, and what what is kind of the common narrative about its history? The story of the Kensington Rune Stone uh, begins in – I'm sorry, 1898. Um, and as the story is typically told, there was a Swedish immigrant farmer by the name of Olaf Omen who was out in his field in uh, western Minnesota, Douglas County. Um, near the village of Kensington, and he was clearing trees off of his land in order to expand his his farm fields. And he was using this winch mechanism to pull an aspen tree, uh, the roots, out of the ground. And as the roots peeled back, as the story goes, his son Edward uh, found this strange slab of stone with uh, markings carved into the surface. And within uh, days, uh, supposedly he had uh, shared this with his other neighbors and uh, the common narrative is that they didn't know what it was. So they sent it off to the to the University of Minnesota and eventually the University of Chicago um, to analyze what this inscription was. So that's kind of like the traditional story, uh, the way that it's been told. Now, the inscription on the stone. Uh, is important to <clears throat> get a sense of what the words actually say. Fairly quickly, the uh, the message was translated uh, into to English. The script carved into the stone was actually fairly quickly recognized by this, the largely Swedish and Norwegian immigrant population in the region. They recognized these script these these letters to be runic runes. Um, part of the runic uh, alphabet. Um, essentially, that is the the runic runes are the the script that was used by Scandinavian people before the Latinized alphabet was introduced to, to Scandinavia. So the inscription was translated. The face of the inscription was translated as follows: Eight Swedes and twenty-two Norwegians on an exploration journey from Vinland westward. We had our camp by two rocky islets, one day's journey north of the stone. We were out fishing one day. When we came home, we found ten men, red with blood and dead. A.V.M. Save us from evil. The year, 1362. So this inscription um, fascinated the local community. Um, especially the the date of 1362. This was 140 years before Christopher Columbus had sailed into the the Bahamas and and the Western Hemisphere. So if this artifact could be proven to be true, it would show that European America began uh, in the heart of the continent long before Christopher Columbus. And this would cause the history books to be rewritten. Um, so the local community pinned their hopes on this artifact. Now, over time, um, and we can talk about this more in details later, but just to give you the, the overview, um, the locals, with the help of, of several 
uh, interpreters, which I'll, I'll mention later, Yalmer Holland in particular, uh, they began to kind of embellish this narrative. And over time, it became uh, kind of a North American origin story, which described these Scandinavian explorers as Viking missionaries that reached the area uh, on a mission to save the Christian faith. And half of the group did not survive because they were massacred uh, by the local native population. Um, now, this artifact was fairly quickly determined to be the product of a, of a hoax. Um, most scholars at the University of Chicago and University of Minnesota said that, you know, very likely it was Olaf Omen and some of his neighbors that must have carved the inscription on the slab of stone as a practical joke um, to prove that their ethnic group was uh, was great, and it was simply just a, a, a joke that had gotten out of out of hand. And I can talk more later about the the reasons for. Well, I can maybe I'll mention it now. Um, over time, in the past, you know, decades, and even early on, they recognized that the uh, the language used in the inscription um, did not properly resemble the language used in the 14th century. And even recently, there's a, a scholar uh, named Henrik Williams from Uppsala University in Sweden. And he's done some research and found out that the that there are particular uh, word usages in this inscription that were actually quite commonly used in parts of Sweden in the 1880s. So therefore, the local population of the immigrants that came to Minnesota could have had access to the type of language used in the inscription. Um, there's also uh, the geological evidence is pretty is pretty ambiguous about this runestone as well because um, if I didn't know much about uh, stone inscriptions before researching this project, but I've learned now that it's nearly impossible to date with any accuracy the age of a of a stone inscription. And then, of course, there's also the circumstances of now we we have no other corroborating proof that Vikings traveled any further westward than Newfoundland. We do know that as of the 1960s, we do know that Vikings did indeed travel to North America. There is a settlement on the northeastern tip of Newfoundland called Lanza Meadows. And uh, even uh, uh, just a few, several months ago, there was a, I think it was a Discovery Channel show that, that uh, uh, was looking into the possibility of Vikings mining bog ore and had pro- probably, possibly even settled or spent some time in the southeastern tip of Newfoundland, getting them a little bit closer towards the, you know, the mainland of, of North America. But most scholars uh, have, have pretty roundly said that this artifact is not legitimate. It was probably created in the 19th century by Omen or his neighbors, but yet people were enchanted by the story that it inspired, and they refused to let this belief go. And this is really what makes this book of yours really, really fascinating. And um, to, to think through the importance of the stone and how it was utilized, and remember, you 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 frame it in this kind of narrative of civil religion, um, and especially this idea of myth. So could you talk a little bit about uh, the concept of civil religion and how you employ it, um, and what does, using this framework, uh, how does it aid you in your analysis? 
Well, I think this book really poses some questions that I think are, are really fundamental to the study of religion, the study of history, and the study of group identity. For me, I think what the important question is, you know, is not whether or not the artifact is scientifically valid. It, you know, is, is it what it claims to be historically? I think what it, the fascinating thing is what this stone has has meant as a kind of a civic totem, as a, as a, a civic symbol for people in Minnesota. I think the important question is, you know, what do our myths say about who we are? Uh, what can we learn about ourselves uh, by the stories that we find ourselves telling? And as far as like a question of, you know, this debates between religion and science and, and how they relate with one another, uh, one of the driving questions that I think uh, drives this book is this notion of why do we persist in believing stories that have been disproven by, by science, uh, by scientific and historical analysis? So it really is a book that I think that takes a, a really uh, deep look at how this myth, how this story became so deeply popular and so ingrained in the local identity, even when the scientific evidence was, was flimsy uh, at best throughout. Um, perhaps I could just talk a little bit about American civil religion for your audience who may not be as familiar with that, that term. The term was coined in 1967 by a sociologist named Robert Bella. And he argued that uh, he, he thought of, uh, of religion in terms of, you know, something that went beyond simply institutional religion, uh, you know, the, the Catholic Church, the Lutheran Church or, or Islam or something like that. You know, Bella saw, uh, interpreted the ways that Americans uh, viewed history in meaningful ways as a form of civil religion. So he, he saw that, um, he recognized that, uh, you know, interpreting American history in terms of ultimate values and ultimate uh, authority is a, is a way of, um, of, of conceiving of, of American patriotism or national identity in kind of a quasi-religious type of, of a form. And I think Bella has often been criticized, um, and by the time that I even read Bella in you know the mid two thousand mid to late two thousands, Bella was kind of had become uh, out of fashion. Um, this concept of civil religion had become out of fashion simply be, you know f- for justifiable reasons, because I think it led to this impression that uh, you know that there's supposed to be this national shared consensus that we all um, hold certain values and beliefs in common as, as Americans. Um, but some of the more recent and innovative treatments of civil religion have begun to see, to think of it in terms of what Art Remillard would refer to as civil religions rather than civil religion. Um, so I see the story of the Kensington Runestone and the popular uh, fascination, this popular movement that that rose up around this myth as a form of a localized civil religion. It's how a local community uh, appropriated, you know, some of the narratives and themes of you know American manifest destiny and God's chosenness uh, for the nation, and somehow appropriated them into the local setting. You know, for for example. I think in, in American religious history, a lot of the, uh, the way that history is told um, oftentimes 
is this notion that, you know, American history, that the United States began with these Protestants, these pilgrims, these Puritans in the Northeast, or maybe the Anglicans in Virginia or something like that. Um, you know, history for, for too long, for off, for, you know, in many ways has been told with that kind of a Protestant East Coast bias to it. Um, so, but in a way, this story of the Kensington runestone uh, really problematizes this kind of dominant American civil religious story by saying that, no, you know, the United States or, or America, as they describe it, began in the Midwest uh, by Vikings, by Northern Europeans, and who just happened to be Catholic. And we'll talk about the Catholic piece a little bit later. Um, so, in, a, and in many ways, this American civil religion is constructed by these Western Minnesotans is it appropriates large uh, American themes, but it, it localizes it and makes the story uh, to serve local purposes and local concerns. So I think in that way, uh, Myths of the Runestone offers another example of how um, there are a diversity of civil religious expressions in the U.S. today. Now, much of the popularity of the stone is due to one man, Yalmer Holland. Can you tell us who he was and why is he so important to this, this narrative of the runestone? Yalmer Holland is an utterly fascinating figure. I, as I researched into the archives, one thing that I really wish I could have found uh, would be some video of him uh, speaking or an audio recording or, or something like that. He really was a really fascinating figure. He was, he was born in Norway he um, immigrated to Wisconsin as a pretty young man, and his first job uh, was to be a, a traveling book salesman. So he would travel all through the rural area selling uh, books to, to people. So he, he kind of had this salesman type of, of mentality. Now, Yalmer Holland is, is almost wholly responsible for the popularity of the Kensington Runestone in the 20th century. Not about, uh, you know, a couple of years after Omen uh, discovered the stone, university experts declared it to be a hoax. As the story goes, Omen returned it to his farm and essentially stored it in his granary for several years. But in 1907, uh, Yalmer Holland was traveling across Minnesota and he was on a project to gather pioneer stories of Norwegian immigrants in the upper Midwest. And as Holland tells the story, he just happened to stumble upon Omen's farm and found this interesting artifact and uh, told Omen, gee, this is really uh, a fascinating piece of work you have here. This could prove that our ancestors, our Swedish-Norwegian ancestors, were the first white people to, to come to this area. Um, I'd like to take the stone. I'd like to buy the stone from you or take it, take it from you and, and do some more research on it. And um, Omen at that time released possession, uh, released ownership of the stone to, to Holland, who took it for research. And at that point in 1907, he began a um, decades-long crusade to prove this stone to be true. He wrote several books. He wrote dozens of articles. He, he went traveled to, to Europe, to France, to Sweden, to Norway, all over the United States, uh, touting this runestone as an authentic artifact. So we have to ask the question of what was his motivating factor? What was he trying? What was he, did he have invested in this stone? 
Um, we know from other evidence that Holland had actually been attempting to track down this stone for a number of years. So he was a bit dishonest in his narratives about how he came across it. Um, we know that that Holland used the story of the runestone as, as a prologue for his Norwegian immigrant history. So in the, his very opening of the book, he discusses how the Vikings kind of paved the way for his Norwegian uh, immigrant forebears in the 19th century. Um, so clearly he had uh, an agenda to, to, do, to do that. And Holland had some very interesting strategies. Perhaps we can talk a little bit about how he was able to convince so many people that this runestone was authentic. You know, he spent decades proving this thing to be the real deal. Um, and he used, he was so effective that by the 1960s, a Minneapolis newspaper recorded that 60% of Americans believed that Vikings had visited Minnesota prior to Columbus. So he was able to powerfully influence the public. Um, and he did so using some pretty flimsy pieces of scientific evidence. I'll share with you a couple of them. He had a theory that he had found throughout the Minnesota countryside a number of boulders that had holes chiseled into them. He claimed that these so-called holy boulders, as I like to, to call them, were used to anchor Viking ships as they traveled across the Minnesota landscape. Um, he also uh, found uh, farmers would bring him uh, supposed Viking swords and battle axes that they had dug up in their farm fields across the landscape. Um, and also he had a theory that uh, there, was a, there were a number of uh, ethnographic accounts of Mandan Indians having blonde hair and blue-eyed characteristics in the Dakota Territory. So this all proved to Holland that the Vikings had been everywhere in Minnesota. They'd, they'd carved these boulders, uh, left their weapons, and intermarried with the local native people. But over time, researchers discovered that these boulders had actually been chiseled out to hold dynamite because farmers would blast boulders for foundation rock for their buildings. The Viking uh, battle axes that they had found were actually uh, well-known um, tobacco cutters that were put out by a battle axe uh, tobacco company. Um, these blonde, blue-eyed Indians that they had, dis had, to, had that Holland had talked about had actually intermarried with Spanish and French explorers. But to the public, they didn't they didn't care about the evidence. They found his narrative so compelling that they were able to look beyond any of the holes in his evidence and were able to follow his story. Holland had a tremendously charismatic personality and he was a very seductive writer. One of the documents that helped him tell the story was an obscure letter that he found in the Danish archives. And this letter was written by Sweden's King Magnus in the 14th century. And this letter called for an expedition to Greenland to find colonists who were feared to have abandoned the Christian faith or gone native, um, so to speak. Um, there's no proof. There, this, there is an actual letter in the Danish archives, uh, but there's no proof that King Magnus ever carried out this expedition, uh, no proof that it, uh, that it ever 
that came to fruition. But yet, that story was critical. The more um, criticism that Holland faced for his evidence, he kept embellishing the story by adding this notion of Viking, these were Viking Christians, these were missionaries, saving the, saving the faith. And they had sacrificed their lives to, to, to save the faith. And little by little, he was able to generate popular support because so many different groups found a way to invest themselves in the importance of the story that he was telling. Yeah, and one of the uh, one of the main concerns at the turn of the, the 20th century here was uh, rethinking the Dakota War of 1862, and how uh, white Americans, their relationships with Native Americans, um, and how they made sense of, I guess, conquest and expansion into the American West. Can you talk a little bit about how the the stone figures into this? context there's something very interesting in the inscription of the stone i think you'll remember that i mentioned that the date on the inscription is 1362 now in minnesota history perhaps the most traumatic event significant event in minnesota history is uh the dakota war of 1862 i think there's an interesting parallel between those two numbers there's a there's a very neat 500-year discrepancy between those two dates. And I think that they are somehow related in the mind of the person who created this inscription. So let, let me explain a little bit of more background. The Dakota War of 1862 uh, came about after uh, Minnesota statehood. It became a state in 1858. Prior to that, there had been a great deal of... of uh, well, negotiation between the local uh, Dakota tribes living in southern Minnesota and the new white settlers who were moving into the to the region, and the Dakota people had essentially given up vast segments of of land in very fraudulently uh, put together treaties, um, given a very minimal amount of money, but essentially the tribes were were strong armed into this uh, to the negotiating uh, table. Um, so by 1862, they, the local Dakota, uh, Dakota had relinquished a, another segment of land along the Minnesota. So they, at, by this point, they were living along a very narrow strip of land along the Minnesota River. And by 1862, this was the heart of the American Civil War. And the annuities that were promised to the Dakota uh, bands that lived along this river were not coming through because the federal government was occupied uh, by this uh, by the American Civil War. So when the annuities were delayed, the local Dakota people were were facing starvation because uh, they weren't able to get the food they needed to to survive, the food that was uh, promised to them. So during the summer of 1862, uh, Dakota warriors um, raided a government ware- warehouse, stole, uh, took took their food back, took their annuities back from, from forcibly, and some Dakota warriors actu- actually went out to the to the countryside and killed uh, white settlers, and the the whole thing blew up into a uh, violent conflict where. Uh, perhaps a few hundred white settlers were killed in over a matter of just a few weeks' time. Now, within uh, a couple of weeks, uh, Fort Snelling in near Minneapolis dispatched troops. They brutally crushed uh, the the Dakota people's uh, uprising. 
um, and they sentenced over a 400 Dakota men to death in a hastily thrown together military tribunal. There was an intervention by President Lincoln and only 38 were executed. But um, in the months after that execution, which took place in Mankato, Minnesota, in December 26, 1862, this was actually the largest mass execution in U.S. history, even to today, uh, happened in Minnesota. Uh, within months after that execution, nearly all of the Dakota people were forcibly exiled from the state of Minnesota, dropping from a population of 6,000 to less than 100 or so uh, within, within a year. So it was a violent removal from the landscape. And I think that for many, uh, clearly for, for decades after this Dakota War, many white people uh, exp- uh, you know, were traumatized, understandably, by this event. And uh, they were fascinated by commemorating this event in very interesting ways. They had these tableaus that would travel around the countryside, and people would, would view paintings of these violent uh, massacre uh, settings of, of, of white people, of course, making white people to be purely innocent and the native people being purely uh, pure evil. And my argument is, is that whoever created this uh, Kensington runestone very likely had the Dakota War in mind in some way. And certainly by the time the stone was discovered, people interpreted the dead Vikings. Now, remember, the inscription says nothing about native people. It simply says these Norsemen were found uh, dead and red with blood. But for 20th century Minnesotans, it was obvious to them that it could only be native people who, who, um, who perpetrated this, this crime. And I think as I've read the archival materials and the, uh, the, the books, I'll find repeated references to uh, – there's one writer in particular, Constant Larson, who described – um, he included the story of the Kensington Runestone as a parallel story to the Dakota War, uh, what he called the Sioux Outbreak of 1862. And in both chapters, he describes the Indians who killed the, the Vikings as savages. He describes the Indians who killed the Norwegians and the Germans and the Swedes in the 19th century as savages. So throughout the the language of those who have defended the runestone over the years, they have made a clear and distinct link between the Indians of the past and the Indians of the the 19th uh, century. So in my mind, the Kensington runestone story functions as what René Girard might refer to as a scapegoat ritual, where by the retelling of this history narrative, they were able to, to, to demonstrate that um, the Indians of the, of the distant past were just as, as violent as the native people from the recent past. And therefore, their removal from the landscape was justified and required because they were essentially, na- essentially savage and incapable of living in a white community. Um, so I, I can see in many ways that this runestone provided or at least uh, kind of expresses, I think, um, the attitudes that white Minnesotans had towards Native people even in the early 20th century. And as we get into the 20th century, uh, the stone takes on kind of a new symbolic meaning, uh, almost representative of small-town life, Midwestern American ideals. How was this uh, identity constructed? What what did it l- look like? And 
Um, how was it basically socialized into Minnesota culture? In the 1920s, Sinclair Lewis published a novel called Main Street. And in this novel, it was a depiction of a western Minnesota town not far from Alexandria and Kensington. And this depiction by Sinclair Lewis um, portrayed the town as kind of parochial, backward, simple, uneducated. And uh, many of the local folks uh, felt attacked like their identity, their self-esteem was attacked. This was a time period when small-town life was lauded as the ideal. Um, uh, Main Street was supposed to be the, the ideal of what America uh, ought, ought to be. Um, but this, this novel, written by a, a young man, Sinclair Lewis, from uh, this part of Minnesota, not far from where I grew up, um, he was viewed as attacking the region. So... I argue that the, the Kensington Runestone played uh, a, a helpful role in bolstering the self-esteem of this region because this runestone could prove, this artifact could prove that small-town Minnesota was significant in the American story. And I he, as I read many of the boosters of the runestone in the 1920s, they would compare this small town in Minnesota to Boston and Philadelphia. And they would say, like, you know, why do these tourists, these tourists – they go to Philadelphia and Boston, but they really ought to come to Western Minnesota because that's where the real history is um, out here. So it boosted the self-esteem in so many uh, very interesting ways. And the artifact itself be, emerged as, as kind of a totem, a representative of the region. And I trace the kind of the apotheosis of this artifact and, <coughs> excuse me, Holland and others uh, performed uh, civic rituals as this, such as this one fundraising rally where they stationed two national guardsmen next to the stone and kind of gr- gave it this aura of a sacred, important artifact. And, and by, by treating the artifact in this way, it began to kind of raise the prestige, this kind of cultural capital of this artifact in the eyes of the public. And, and by the 1950s or 1940s, actually, um, the runestone had gained so much local popularity and Holland had uh, created such a kind of public spectacle of this runestone that he managed to convince the Smithsonian Institution in D.C. to host the artifact uh, for a year. In reading the newspaper articles um, from the Minneapolis newspapers, the big city newspapers and the small town newspapers, it's really quite fascinating because you get a sense of how much the local f- folks in Alexandria invested in this artifact as a representative of their community, um, especially even as when the Runestone went to the World's Fair in 1965, uh, the New York World's Fair held in, in Queens. And the Runestone uh, stood as an emblem of Minnesota at the Minnesota exhibit at the World's Fair. And locals at one point expressed concern that their artifact would become desecrated at this fair, that people would be making fun of it at some point. And when the, uh, there was some internal issues with the exposition and they ran out of money and they had to close it down, they immediately dispatched uh, Harvey Hammergren, the local civic uh, leader of the community, and he drove all the way out to New York from Minnesota picked up the runestone, wrapped it in a blanket, and put it in the back of his 1965 Buick and drove it all the way back to Minnesota where it could be safe. Um, so you can have a, see a sense of this artifact 
um, stood as a representative of the identity of the significance of small town America. And these civic events um, where the runestone got national attention, these were opportunities for small town America to hold up their values and their beliefs um, before a national audience. And uh, it was an opportunity for them to, 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 to boost their self-esteem as a local community. Now, anyone that knows anything about Minnesota knows that it is uh, ex- expressively Lutheran in character. Um, but uh, Catholics in the region did, were not left out in this narrative. So could you talk a little bit about uh, how Catholics use the runestone in their own construction of Christian identity and uh, how they deployed it in specific contexts? Just a couple of years after Yalmer Holland uh, began his public crusade to prove the runestone uh, true, he found some allies among local Catholic leaders in Minnesota, and the most famous of which is Archbishop John Ireland. Um, he's one of America's most famous Catholics of the early 20th century, certainly Minnesota's most famous Catholic. And the Archbishop uh, was, was somehow convinced to show up to one of Yalmer Holland's promotional meetings held at the Minnesota Historical Society in 1909. And I was pondering this question of like, why would the archbishop, you know, an incredibly busy leader, why would he come out uh, to to hear a presentation about this obscure Scandinavian artifact found in, in a very Protestant part of Minnesota? And as I began to dig deeper into the story, I realized that there were some very good reasons for him to do so. One of which was that Archbishop Ireland was working hard to convert uh, Lutheran Scandinavians. uh, Scandinavians in Minnesota were, of course, as you you mentioned, were primarily Lutheran. I think it's very credible that that Ireland was trying to to find a way of endorsing the runestone as a means of reaching this Protestant community by reminding them that Scandinavia, before the Protestant Reformation, was indeed a Catholic place. Now, the date on this runestone inscription is 1362. That was before the Protestant Reformation. So these Vikings, as I mentioned before, were actually Catholic Vikings in the eyes of Archbishop Ireland, especially those letters in the inscription that I mentioned, A-V-M. Ireland interpreted those letters to stand for Ave Virgo Maria, so for Ireland, he interpreted the Ave AVM, Save Us From Evil, as the first Catholic prayer ever uttered in North America. So in a sense, he was able to use this as kind of a symbolic tool to persuade, uh, to invite these Scandinavians back to the, their original faith of Scandinavia. And on a second level, we have to remember, if you know anything about Catholic history in America, Catholics were frequently the targets of suspicion, uh, frequently marginalized in, um, in social life, uh, often sometimes the targets of violence. In Minnesota, it was a region where, where Catholics did have some level of, of prominence. Uh, there were Irish Catholics and there was a strong German Catholic presence in, in the region. But still, in the early 20th century, Catholics had not reached the pinnacle of of local political power. In fact, it wasn't even until the 1980s that Minnesota had a Catholic governor. 
So I think Ireland saw this as, as a way, this runestone, as a way of bolstering Catholic social capital in the state. Because he could prove that uh, the earliest uh, white people, the earliest Europeans in Minnesota were actually Catholics and not these Lutherans who had such you know, social power in, in this, at the state at the time. And the story just grew throughout the 20th century. We saw um, other archbishops, um, a bishop of Minnesota, a bishop of central Minnesota who took on the runestone and, and uh, during the 1950s was advocating a devotion to what he called Our Lady of the Runestone. And I visited a local Catholic church uh, nearby uh, Alexandria. It's actually in the village of Kensington. And there's actually a parish called Our Lady of the Runestone. And it was named um, for uh, the Kensington Runestone. And there's a there's a just an incredible portrait. And I have it in one of the pages, one of the por- uh, photos in my book of the Virgin Mary standing in the North American landscape with her hands lifted to the sky. There's a Viking ship in the background. Uh, there's the North Star behind her. And there's the, uh, uh, the, the runestone that is sticking out of the ground, and she is offering a, a prayer in the landscape. And if you look closely at that image as well, you'll also see a small star in Mexico, which represents the, the, the appearance of the Vir- uh, Virgin of Guadalupe. And I think that's an interesting juxtaposition that this is kind of perhaps a like a Nordic uh, version or a northern European, a white version of the Virgin Mary, not necessarily appearing in the landscape, but yet in this portrait um, blessing uh, the the presence of of white Catholics in North America. Now, in in the mid 20th century, we have changing social context. We have the, the Cold War. We have uh, attitudes towards religion changing a little bit, or at least fears of decline in religion. What was going on during this time, and, and how, was the, how was the stone uh, redeployed or rearticulated in this kind of changing in, environment of the, the 1950s and 60s? The 1960s and, and 50s and even into the early 70s, it was a particularly rich, culturally rich time for the Kensington Runestone enthusiasm. And one of the most fascinating documents that I found in the archives was a comic book called Mystery, I think it was Mystery of, of the Runestone. And in this comic book is a, a narrative telling and a pictorial uh, telling of the imagined journey of the, the Vikings, the Norsemen, to North America. And one of the, as I read this, this as a comic book, it's obviously it's written for a youth audience. It's written for young people in a very accessible way. This, this comic book was uh, one of the, the, the main pieces of literature that accompanied the um, Minnesota exhibit at the World's Fair in 1965. And in this comic book, it is riddled with language of anxiety and fear about the Christian faith ever being at risk. So in each of the frames is this kind of unfolding narrative of King Magnus, this Christian, a benevolent king in Sweden, dispatches these uh, this Christian leader named Sir Paul Knudsen um, to lead this expedition to find colonists who had disappeared from Greenland, feared to have given up the Christian faith, searched all over North America, and all throughout this journey we see kind of like images and references to 
uh, Sir Paul Knutson and the priest that was along with the uh, the group reminding the folks to reminding the other Vikings in the uh, the traveling party to stay uh, faithful to, to God, to stay with the Christian faith. Don't turn to the uh, to the, the pagan ways, the the ancient Norse religion. Um, don't turn to the religion of the native people. And it's a it's a very interesting uh, as it unfolds as well. There's the, the the kind of the centerpiece of this comic book as a kind of a bifold thing that you open up and it's a vivid picture of the what the, what is called the Viking massacre site. So on this picture you can see a, a, a landscape of uh, Vikings sprawled all over the lands all over the the land and next to this lakeside camp. They're covered in blood. Their weapons are laid out before them on the ground. You see priests walking around, uh, weeping and praying and saying uh, uh, prayers to, to, to Ave Maria for um, the violent act that had taken place at this. So we get the sense that like there was a, a notion of, of, of a Christian – this was an, an incident of Christian martyrdom, that, that Christian heroic white – Missionaries had had sacrificed their lives uh, traveling through the savage and native uh, landscape, and I think that this anxiety needs to be seen. The anxiety in this comic book needs to be seen in the larger anxieties going on during that time. I think it was 1962 where you had the uh, Supreme Court case, which uh, prevented uh, teachers from saying prayers in public schools, the, the Bible reading in public schools. So there was a, one of a widespread example, uh, a widespread anxiety about Christianity uh, being disestablished or being th- its presence being threatened in public. So I think that there's a, and there's also like the, the Elmer, there was an Elmer, uh, uh, a film called Elmer Gantry, another Sinclair Lewis uh, novel that was turned into a film and that film portrayed rural religious people in, as kind of like uh, very backward and they portrayed religious preachers as hucksters and manipulators and that kind of thing. So, again, there's there's this kind of growing anxiety about the the status quo or the cultural cachet of Christianity during that time. And I think this runestone narrative, the story of Viking sacrifice, uh, dead Christian Vikings helped to assuage some anxieties um, that were going on at the time. And in many of the writings, we see a direct parallel between uh, a defense of the Kensington runestone was was equated with a defense of the very of Christian faith itself. And there was a novel that was written called Immortal Rock, which really plays out this theme that uh, defending the runestone meant defending the Christian faith. They were inextricably linked together. Well, Dave, there's tons in this book that I love, uh, lots of little examples like these that you, you go through, and of course we don't have time. But perhaps you could help listeners and hopefully future readers. It seems like a lot of these would work really well in the classroom. So do you, do you have ideas about how you might use sections of the book or the whole book itself in the classroom? I think it's pretty adaptable to a variety of college, university, seminary, settings, study groups, book clubs. Um, like I said, I wrote it in a way that I think appeals to a lay audience and to an academic audience. It's it's a slim read. It's about 159 pages. It's got 34 pages of notes if you want to dig in deeper. And I, and it, I think it can fit into a wide variety of classes. I mean, if you have a class dealing with myths, how they're created, how they're constructed, propagated, you know, if you have an American studies class, there are many themes that fits with, fit with this book. 
in a history class. It's a great project looking at collective memory popular in, in how popular challenges have arisen to dominant history writing. This question of the ongoing quest for Europe, finding evidence of Europeans in pre-Columbian America. Religion, American civil religion, sacred spaces, sacred landscapes, Catholic American identity, um, Native Americans and race, how white people have appropriated and imagined Native people, how whiteness was constructed um, using Native people as a, as a contrast, ethnicity, Scandinavian identity, immigrant religion, regional identity, and of course, I think what might be really fascinating is this notion of why there is such a widespread distrust for the scientific academic community. This strain of anti-intellectualism, which is not just going on today, but has deep roots in, in American history. Why is it that people, why is it that beliefs persist even when science contradicts? And lastly, I think it could be useful in a, in a kind of a multidisciplinary humanities course because it does touch on a lot of different traditions. So um, I'm available via Skype to speak to your class. I can um, offer other resources as well. And if you visit my books book website at mythsoftherunestone.com, I have some helpful other ideas for how to use the book. And I think uh, just the range of topics uh, th- that the book could be used for that you, you've laid out for us here makes me wonder what you're working on now, right? If you're... If you're <laughs> Dipping into so many different uh, areas of study, uh, you really could be going anywhere. So, could you tell us a little bit about the the types of things you you are up to in your research now? Yeah, that's that's an interesting observation because I, I do feel like there are so many of these threads. Like I could take just one chapter itself and just kind of like dig uh, deeper and just go a million different directions. One thing that might be interesting to me, uh, I've I've done some initial research on moving towards a kind of a a book-length treatment of American myths in general, or maybe focusing specifically on other American discovery myths. Um, the notion of St. Brennan the Irish uh, Catholic coming to North America prior to Columbus. Uh, other myths of, of uh, other groups coming to North America. It could be you know, maybe a little bit broader to talk about uh, the Christian nation myth more broadly, the myths of uh, Manifest Destiny. There could be a number of ways to go. Uh, one of the challenges I face as a in, as an independent scholar, I'm not tied to a university, I'm not on the tenure track. I am working as a professional to kind of raise my own money to become a scholar, kind of a scholar entrepreneur. So I've been working as a public pedagogy consultant for a group called the Inside Out Prison Exchange Program, providing uh, educating the public about prison issues through them. So I'm able to make income through through that. And also income through uh, uh, my work as a public historian. Um, I've done a lot of work as a uh, history tour guide uh, in Philadelphia. So I give tours of religious and historic sites in Philadelphia. Uh, This is the town founded as a holy experiment by William Penn, a town where uh, religious diversity was embraced, whereas other colonies, uh, religious diversity was squelched. So there's lots of opportunity to research and to teach the public here. I've also done some work as a uh, contributor for some TV networks, and those will be broadcast in January. I'm not able to say which networks they are at this point, but uh, believe me, I will tell you all about it uh, <laughs> once it once it does go go public. 
so I think as far as my scholarly research, I'm, I'm also trying to build on this religion in Philadelphia project a little bit more deeply. I've done some writing about the new Mormon temple that was just built in Philadelphia. I wrote for Religion Dispatches recently. And I also have a project looking at Islamic men's clothing in Philadelphia. And I'll be doing a presentation on that for the American Academy of Religion this, this fall with a, a group uh, looking at that. But uh, some fun projects to, to look forward to if I can carve out the, the time and make the, <laughs> yeah, the finances, busy. finances work. Uh, and raising a family, two young boys as well, it's a, it's a challenge. Well, we wish you uh, the best of luck, Dave, and thank you for, for cutting out some time to talk about your book. My pleasure, Christian. I really enjoyed it. That was my conversation with Dave Kruger about Myths of the Runestone, Viking Martyrs and the Birthplace of America, published by University of Minnesota Press in 2015. Thanks again for listening to New Books in Religion. With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.